Hi, Lisa. Hello, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Good, thank you. Thanks for reaching out. No worries. Honestly, uh, after I spoke to Joey um, and I saw your you comment on Insta, I was like, I need to watch it because it only just come up on Amazon UK um, when I right. spoke to Joey and I was like, I need to watch it. So I sat down and watched it and, oh my God, it literally blew my mind. I guess in a good way, I hope. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I, love, I love anything 80s. You can probably tell from my my tattoos on my arms, I've got sort of... Oh, yeah. Very. Yeah. What's your favourite 80s film then? Oh, that's a good question. Um, it's a difficult one. I would say probably Breakfast Club. Okay. Just about Pip. Just about Pip's Navigator, Never Ending Story, Beverly Hills Cop and the Blues Brothers. Yeah, good selection. I think. Um, yeah, I'm a kid of the 80s, born early 80s. So it's kind of the era of the best films like ever they were all original mm -hmm. they I don't think I've ever seen an 80s film probably apart from real real low budget ones that haven't stood the test of time yeah I agree it's a it's a masterful decade of film and one that was all about original stories wasn't it as opposed to money making sequels remakes oh, oh. kids these days they don't know, they don't know how they don't know how how bad they've got it, you know. I mean, the eighties was just full of original ideas. You can't, yeah. you know, pick any any film nowadays. I mean, I watched um, Finding Ohana. The other oh day. yeah, I've, I've I haven't seen it, but I've heard it's like a Goonies esque. Yeah, it literally vibe. it's the Goonies in Hawaii with right. a little bit of mythology added in. You know, a little bit of um uh, Hawaiian legend and, and folklore added in. That's literally it. Mm. And I Is it good? Um it's a nice it's a nice watch. It's a nice watch. It's it's better than most Netflix films. I find right. Netflix films tend to have zero soul and zero emotion, but this one tended to have quite a bit of uh, of emotion and, and thought behind yeah. Films, I so. think Netflix are good for series, but it feels like Netflix films because they're trying to churn out so much content, they they don't put the budget really into the movies. They might put the budget into like one main actor and they don't really put much work into the rest. <laughs> well, I mean, Triple Frontier was a great example of that. Six Underground with Ryan Reynolds again, yeah. you know. They should stick to, they sh really should stick to doing TV series and leave the, the movies up to those who actually, you know, have done it for years and years and years. Yeah, we'll show them, we'll tell them. <laughs> oh, honestly, if they would listen, it would be great. I'd love to see more original TV series, but Netflix has a habit of cancelling TV series after like a series anyway. Exactly. It's it's shocking. So, but no, I did sit and watched uh, and I I watched Life After Navigator and I genuinely couldn't take my eyes off of the screen. Usually I will sort of potter about when I've got something on, but I was literally drawn to every single bit of it. I loved all of the the nuances within it and all of the little the little bits that were that were thrown in that I didn't even know about, you know. And Joey mm. had alluded to some in our interview. 
Um, and then Joey's story, just like, I mean, I, I knew that he had, he had had it a little bit difficult after the navigator. I didn't yeah. realize how much, um, because I didn't want, when I was interviewing him, I didn't want to go down that route. I wanted to talk about, about navigator and about yeah. getting into acting and stuff. I don't want to focus on any of that, but watching that, it, it made my heart ache. Oh, yeah. I felt so, so bad for him for how he's had it, but also very elated for where he is now. Yeah. The place that he finds himself in now. And I think that's brilliant. And he was such a, an absolute gent to talk to. He's lovely, isn't he? And you just, you totally feel like when I, when, well, the, and people, a lot of people have said this when they just, kind of watch the film or they message him. And I had this when I was writing letters with him initially and then met him. Like you feel like you've known him for years. Like he was some friend you grew up with and you yeah. are rooting for him. So that that's very sweet. I'm glad you said that. But no, honestly, such an absolute gen. And we still keep in touch now over Instagram as well, which is, which is phenomenal. Um, and like I said in the interview, it was a bucket list thing for me because I love Navigator. I grew up... <laughs> watching Navigator and every time it's on the TV I'll sit and watch it you know and the film was just amazing the web show you do as well is I, oh, I can't tell you how <laughs> jealous I am I can't tell you how jealous I am the list of people that you've spoken to they're all people <laughs> on the list that I want to speak to you know I want to speak to Tammy I want to speak to um to Noah I want to speak to Sam Jones you know Flash Gordon who doesn't want to talk to Flash Gordon He's you know, brilliant too. I was, um, yeah, so I've, uh, I've watched quite a few of those as oh, well. Oh, good. Well, I've got a new one coming out on Sunday, which, because I think I'm the same as you, I was child of the early 80s and then teen of the 90s. So this Sunday's episode is Joey Jeremiah from Degrassi, which I was so excited about. And he was just amazing and he looks the same. So that's coming out on Sunday. I'm, I'm, I'm totally jealous. Like, <laughs> totally, totally jealous. If you wanna, if you wanna send me some of their details, that'd be great. <laughs> oh, I mean, I'm happy to like Sam. I'm I'm happy to kind of connect with him and say, hey, you uh, do you want to do this interview? Noah and Tammy, it's quite early on in our relationship because yeah. I've only met them a couple of times and we've only started filming. But for for sure, Sam, I can reach out that to him. Be- I don't I don't know. He was doing comic cons for a while, even when other areas were locked down. So I don't know where he's at in terms of if he's away or if he's at home, but I can yeah. certainly shoot him an email. Oh, that'd be amazing. Thank you. Where, where, in, the, where in, the, in the world are you? I'm on Hailing Island. Where's that? Down Where's that? near Portsmouth. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so you're in the UK then. I thought you were sort of in the, in the States. And when, no. when I saw that you... You started filming Life After Treyu at London Comic Con. I was thinking, they, I don't know whether they would have flown over here or not. So no. I wasn't sure. The, the reason that it's tricky doing these films and the reason that we have um, kind of always working out what the next ones are going to be is because we're in the UK and it's cost, costly to get over to the States. So we try and film like two or three ahead if we can. To, yeah to um to make the most of it but no we used to live in London and then because we work from home so much and we edit at home as well that we just thought we might as well just move to the south coast so Liverpool Comic Con was where we filmed with Noah and Tammy 
we had I had met up with Noah in LA before that to kind of talk to him about the film and um and get him on board um but then luckily enough Tammy's now in Scotland working on Man and Witch so I'll go up to Scotland to interview her when we can and then Colin Arthur who worked with Ray Harryhausen a lot building like that he's a sculptor did all the Kraken and he um built the designed and built Falcor and the rock biter and all these other amazing creatures and so we went that mini period we had in England where it was like you can go out your house in summer before they change their mind we went and interviewed Colin and now I've got a little piece of Falcor and the the fur on his head and a little um scale downstairs so he had the head he's got Falcor's head in his house so it was pretty cool that's amazing see I, I love I, I love the never-ending story. Um, I don't know what it is about it. It's just, it's so. It's magical. It's fantasy. It is. It? it is. And who? And Falcor. I've dreamed of riding Falcor. Like growing up, you, everyone just wanted to ride the Luck Dragon. Yeah. Well, funnily enough, my mum thought the Luck Dragon was too scary. She said, you can't watch Never Ending Story when you're super little because Falcor's too scary, but you can watch The Dark Crystal and Watership Down. So, you know, nightmares. And then, yeah. then she changed her mind when she actually sat down and watched Dark Crystal and Watership Down. I had to be slightly older, but by then it was already kind of scarred in my head. So the damage yeah. was done. Yeah, Never exactly. will I watch Watership Down again, ever. No, do you know what? I'm, I'm exactly the same. I won't ever be watching that again, even as an adult. I won't just creepy. That's not a children's film. No, whoever thinks that's a children's film is yeah, no. Um, how did you get into into making this? Because you did Life After Flash mm-hmm. with Sam, and you did Life After Navigate, and you've started Life After a Trail. However, yeah. COVID, lockdown, and everything sort of stopped doing that. How did you get into it? How what what made you want to sort of get into doing that? Well, I heard. Always, I had done a degree in television production. So I always knew I wanted to be in media, even when I was little. Um, And I had done a documentary short in university, which I went to India and did this story on the Dalai Lama's sister in this Tibetan village she had started. And um, it won an award at this festival. And I was like, well, this is kind of cool. I like documentaries. I really enjoyed doing that. Well, maybe that's something I can do worked at this time I was in Australia so I was born in England but I went to high school and university in Australia so I worked at this Australian travel documentary company um, and was very jealous that I was the one in the office and they were all around the world traveling Um, but really great experience and then when I moved back to England I ended up working at this adventure travel company um, kind of APing uh, series that with starring Charlie Borman, who was the other half of Ewan McGregor from The Long Way Around, Long Way Down. So I worked on a couple of his series post Long Way Round and Long Way Down. Um, And then kind of while I was there, I just thought, you know what, I want to be the one that has all my creative visions realised. You know, I was spending all this time in an office helping other people do their ideas and I wanted to do my own and so I just I was always looking for something to do I direct I directed with a couple of friends a scripted film during that time but um, I always gravitated towards documentaries and I knew I wanted to do feature documentaries but I was just kind of waiting for the right thing to come about because indie film you have to 
live and breathe it and love it and max out credit cards and all those cliche stories about indie film. Yes, it's all true. Um, and so I was talking to a friend one day, um, a girl called Lisa Doyle, who was an, a producer on The Jump, which you will know being British, that it's the ski slope jumping yeah. celebrity show. Which and has everyone, everyone gets injured on that as well. It's, it's the most ridiculous concept for a show. And Sam was supposed to be on it, got injured, hurt his shoulder. So he was never actually on screen he ended up in hospital with a hurt shoulder and so my friend Lisa got to know him during the time that he was recovering and I was talking to her at a party and she mentioned that and I was gutted that I had actually just met this is a long story just met um I had missed Sam and Melody at a comic-con in London like the year before and so we started talking about Flash Gordon how much we really loved it and she was saying how great Sam was and it just grew into a conversation of, well, I wonder what happened to Sam. You know, he's known for being Flash Gordon. I had known Ted. I didn't know anything else that had happened in between. And I said, that would actually really make a great documentary. And so I wrote up a treatment. She sent it to her contact for him at the time. Um, and I ended up Skyping him and kind of pitching it to him over Skype. And that was October, 2014. And then in January, I ended up at Texas where we initially started filming, but it was also to kind of talk it through with him. We were going to crowdfund, so I needed him on board to make sure he was like happy with what we were going to do and happy with us. And um, and he was, and so that's kind of how it started. And the good thing about documentaries, you can just start filming. So we just had a camera and we didn't know what the story was because you can't Google, really you can't Google someone's true story, you know, so we just started filming and then it kind of grew from there and it took, I was like, yeah, it'll take 12 months. It'll be fine. And it took, it ended up getting released in 2019. Yeah. So it was a while for it to see the light of day, but amazing experience. And halfway through that, we decided to do another one. Then I found Navigator, but that's how it all happened. That's mad. Like it just, crazy. <laughs> it just snowballed in, in, into that. I mean, the, the one thing that I took from from the Navigator documentary was that it was it was raw. There was no pretense to it. Everything about it, from the the small videos that Joey did on his own to um, you know the, the the interviews in the room where you had them all sitting with the back you know the, the playing background. Yeah. Whilst that was semi staged, it was all raw. There was no no script. It was all genuine, and you could really mm. feel feel that that's what sort of really drew me in when I was watching it that this is all natural none of this is is pre-scripted and it's what I loved about it was that it just the emotion was so strong on it yeah and I I think Joey had just been out of jail for about five months when we first met him and same time that interview that he has his NASA shirt on where he was really emotional that was like the second day we had met him so he had really had all of this emotion bottled up on the surface, ready to come out. But he and I had developed a relationship and a trust while he was inside uh, the correctional center because we started writing letters to each other. So we would write letters about what we would do. Sorry, my dog's barking. Um, letters, what we would do with the documentary using his music, maybe as part of it. Um, and so that was a common ground that we had too was the the letter writing so by the time we met him we kind of knew each other and I think that's with Sam with similar he was so open and honest but it 
it took because we didn't have that initial connection before we met him. It was, you know, four or five interviews later that I started to ask the personal questions, but with Joey, they were really just was on the surface and it felt like, like I was saying to you before, it felt like we had been friends for so long. And then the cast and crew still was such a family that it didn't feel like we were doing media interviews. You know, we had Randall had amazingly set up this reunion and organized a studio and emailed everyone to come along and, so in between interviews, everyone was like reminiscing about the film and chatting and catching up. And some people had seen each other the day before and some people hadn't seen each other since 35 years. So it was really this amazing atmosphere that people were kind of in the moment of celebrating the film themselves. And then I would like pull them aside for 15 minutes and and chat to them. But, you know, they were just as worried about Joe when they first read the headlines so you know I think that's really apparent that everyone really cared for him and cared what happened to him and it was a really amazing day I mean when you when you watch the bit more towards the end when they are all just talking and you just see everyone is laughing and smiling and it's it's so great and what I love is the editing of it and how it's how it is an actual story and it's kind of like it's kind of like building to a crescendo it, it mm. slowly builds like for a, like a, an emotional crescendo and then you get to that bit where, where Joey's sitting and he's talking and then all of a sudden um, it, Roland walks in and he's just like and he, and he says his name and you see Joey's body just shift and tighten ever so slightly for a second and it kind yeah. of then it all just sort of falls away yeah it, it was, was just... it was an amazing it was a really fun day and we had planned that kind of surprise because like it says at the beginning Randall and Joey hadn't seen each other since 96 they yeah. had kind of they had kept in contact um and particularly when Randall found out that he was in jail he um started writing to Joe uh, but it really was this like really amazing moment that they saw each other and then Raymond was there and then he came in and you know it's my favorite line he's like yeah I'm finally gonna deliver you home (laughs) and it's this really like beautiful scene and yeah I'm really that that worked out how we wanted it to there was a few bit of a coordination on that day yeah I can imagine that was probably the only day where you really sort of had to do a lot of work to make sure the things happened as they were supposed to so you could get the right reactions I guess yeah I mean obviously you don't want to force a reaction but you don't want to I didn't want um Joey to find out like who was there on the day I didn't want him to know that we were going to surprise him with Randall halfway through and that was kind of the biggest thing to organize is so much as like making sure Joey, Joey didn't find out and then having people like hold Randall outside and then time it for when he can come in and um you know, like a, a camera died the moment he, luckily we had four cameras on it, but the main camera died. So you can't like plan everything. <laughs> so, um, but it, but it all worked out in the end. I think I covered it in the edit, the fact that the main camera. <laughs> lost yeah. a how lo- logistically then, how does it, how does it work shooting a documentary like, like that, like life after the navigator and life after flash? How, how does it, how does it all work from your perspective? pretty much with two people. So myself and Ash, who is my producer, but also my other half, which makes it super handy, um, pretty much do like all the actuality with Joe and with Sam was just the two of us. Um, 
there was, and I would do all the, I, you know, we don't have any coordinator or manage like production manager, production coordinator, production assistant credits on the the films. Cause I do all of that as well. So I find all the interviewees, if I haven't got a contact like through Randall, I had with navigator. So I track people down and then because it's just the two of us, we go out and film um, when we have, kind of an interview that we don't like we think it's only a one-time only chance to get we might bring in like call in a favor from a friend because both of us work in the industry so we might say hey can you just please come to Brian May's house because it took three years to get this interview in we don't want anything to go wrong so can you come and help with a second camera type of interview but pretty much it's the two of us that just does it all which I think helps with the actuality part of it because a it's cost effective but b it it builds the rapport with did with sam and it did with joe that it does feel like you're just kind of hanging out with a friend you know and it's we kind of did this mini three-day road trip with joey around vancouver and and it's just it makes it a bit more personal um it like we would be great to have the budget to have bigger crews yeah. a lot of the time. Um, the reunion we knew was going to be very important. So we made sure we had two roaming cameras, which were film students just out of film school to, they were friend of a friend who were amazing. Um, and then we had two guys come in and do the, the other two main cameras. So I could focus on doing the interview and Ash was doing the DIT and making sure all the cards were copied and it was quite stressful, but um yeah, 80% of the time it's just Ash and I doing everything. That's amazing. That must be, it must be a, a whirlwind of a journey for both of you when when doing them. I mean, obviously, um, doing Life After Flash first, how how did you sort of hone your your skills from, from doing Life After Flash to Life After Navigator? What did you do differently with that than what you did with with Sam this the the structure wise it was kind of easy to take on the edit because I had never edited a feature length anything before I had edited some music videos and bits and pieces but never a feature length so it's quite overwhelming when you're trying to see on a macro level the story and how it flows and so it was quite tough to edit flash but then with navigator I thought I'll just keep it simple and I started off just plotting the same kind of act structure that I had with flash just so I had something to focus on um I also knew you know when you do it independently we self-release the territories that we didn't sell through our sales agent for flash so straight away I knew how to get a blu-ray license and get bbfc rating and do the eno and the clearance and all these kind of legal things that go into doing a film so that I kind of I knew how to do it straight away. So that was the nice part about Navigator is that I had like the composer straight away to go to who did flash and graphics and opening titles. And there were certain crew members that I just brought in for Navigator that I didn't have to worry about because I had found them on flash. Um, and also I realized from being so stressed doing flash that I didn't want to be stressed on this one. So the biggest thing that I took away was, you know, what an amazing experience. I'm on my own timeline. So I'll set a schedule in place and I'll have a date that I want to aim to have it finished by. But if I go over, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to enjoy the process. I'm going to 
like take a week to step away from the edit to then come back and try and watch it objectively. And I had the amazing pleasure of being able to email Randall a couple of edits as well and got his opinion on it. So it was really, um, technically it was a process that I could take from Flash and know how to organize, it sounds so simple, but know how to organize folders in an edit and work with proxies and all these things that I had never done before Flash. Um, but the, one of the biggest takeaways was just the attitude of don't be stressed. It's fine. I don't want to get hung up on it. I want to enjoy the process. And I feel like um, that helped in the final product <laughs> in it as well, which is nice. Was, so was it really stressful with, with doing the life after Flash then? It was because I had just, I hadn't done it before and I put a lot of pressure on myself and um, I was trying to get it finished by a certain date and I was just so fatigued of watching it. I would, you know, I didn't have time to take a step back. It ended up being an hour 45 when it was finished and we did a back of screening in London and we did a screening in LA and it was only in the screening LA that I hadn't watched it for about a month. And Ash had been telling me for ages, he's like, it's too long. It's too long. You can cut 15 minutes out, do it an hour and a half, like, you know, make people walk away wanting more. Mm. And I was like, just so tired from it that I just said, no, it's fine. And then when I saw it in LA, I was like, you're totally right. So then I had had closure on finishing it and then suddenly I'm back in the edit and redoing the score and redoing the grade and read and and it was it was quite stressful because technically I I'm not the greatest editor so I this is might be too like, detailed but like I had different timelines at different frame rates and I didn't realize at the beginning and so little things like that that I had to learn as I went that I knew for navigator straight away that I could so instantly solve problems. It was just a lot, you know, and we had, I had been trying to get funding and we ended up crowdfunding and crowdfunding is a job in itself. And so in between um, editing, I'm like going down to the post office with armed of posters and Blu-rays and then like dealing with customer service and 99% of crowdfunding fans are brilliant. And I couldn't have done flash without them. And a lot of them helped with navigator and, they're amazing, but there's 1% that just make you think, why am I putting myself through this? So it was a, it was a lot to take on and, you know, and the, the stress of not to put people off independent film, if you want to do it, do it. But the stress of um, trying to do it around paid work as well. And then maxing out credit cards and not knowing how you're going to pay the fee of the credit card. And there was a lot going on for Flash, which is why the change of attitude for Navigator was really important to me because I didn't want it to be um, an unpleasant experience. I wanted to enjoy it because how lucky am I to be celebrating these films that I grew up with and love and all these people are giving their time and telling their story and they don't have to. And um, I, it was just really important to me to really be grateful for the experience of doing it. Yeah, I mean... I am, as I said to you, I'm totally jealous of, <laughs> uh, of it because I think it's, but I, I think having someone like like yourself and like Ash who put these together, there are so many people like us who love the 80s and love those films that would love to know what's happened and not go through what we see on 
on on the internet what people have said about this person has done this and this person has done that and it's nice to actually have them tell their their story because a lot of people may may have had a preconception of joey and then mm. watching navigator will will flip that preconception on its head because yes yeah. the just not because of joey being being who he is and being the the the, the sensitive emotional soul that he is but the struggles that he had, you know, it kind of puts those choices into perspective. Yeah, that was really important for us too, was that um, reading Joe's Wikipedia page, you automatically think the worst and, oh my God, I can't believe he did that. But it was important to us to show that a person isn't defined by a headline. And even with, in Flash, I, Sam's son says, you know, just because he's fallen off the face of, oh no, sorry, just because he's not in the headlines anymore doesn't mean he's fallen off the face of the earth. And so it's like, if you're in the headlines, you're not defined by that. And there's a reason maybe why you got to that point. And then if you're not in the headlines, it doesn't mean you're not important and not involved in some way in family and something that's important that people don't think is newsworthy. And so it was quite an interesting dynamic between the two stories, but it definitely was important to us to show that, you know, you can't, you can't judge a headline or judge what you read in the paper because you don't know what someone is really going through. No. And I think, and I think that's, that's sort of the world we live in where if people aren't in the news then they have technically falling off the face of the world, but but they haven't. And, you know, I mean, Sam will always be Flash Gordon to me. I know he was in Ted, but he'll always be Flash Gordon to me. And mm -hmm. Brian Blessed will always be, I mean, well, Brian Blessed is Brian Blessed, let's be honest. <laughs> you know, he's, he's definitely one of a kind. But, um, but yeah, it, it's great to, to be able to see these stories being told from their perspective and not, like you say, Wikipedia, because Wiki's just written by people that think they know, put yeah. it in. And, you know, Joey's story is probably 5% of what's on his wiki page. You've only got to watch exactly. Life After the Navigator to, to see that, you know. Yeah, and you can't, you can't tell how good a person is by reading Wikipedia. Like, Joe is just the loveliest person. And Sam as well. You know, they're both such lovely people and they're people that I'm so glad to be friends with now. As a result, you know, I can't wait for travel to open up so I can go and take Sam and his wife out to dinner and go yeah. and hang out with Joe and his mum because she's just glorious. Um, so you really get to know these people and you realise how hard it was for them to be knowing people, friends and family and fans are reading headlines about this thing that's happened. And, you know, and it was, it was quite um, a brave move for Joe to tell his story because obviously there's a lot of friends that he had grown apart from of everything that happened and you know he was quite nervous about it but thankfully he's getting so many emails and messages from people that are either in the same position he was or used to be or they have friends who were going through what he did and realize that there's light at the end of the tunnel so the main thing for both of Sam and Joey was to have that message of their story out to try and inspire and help people which they seem to be working which is really lovely definitely I mean I, I sent uh, I, I know I sent you a message about it and I sent Joe a message as well after I saw uh, Life After Navigator just to say like just wow honestly 
you know, such an amazing, open and honest man, you know, and it, it, I mean, it didn't change my perception of him at all. Cause when we were talking, it was just, it, it was like I was talking to a friend, you know, yeah. I could have, I could have just spoken to him for hours. Like he's so open and so honest and so genuine. It's, it, it made it so, so easy to talk to him. I can imagine it was relatively easy asking him those personal questions. Um, how was it asking Sam? Because you said, obviously, it took you a few interviews before you started to to get to that point where you could ask him personal questions. Yeah, well, because I hadn't, I hadn't met Sam before. I had only Skyped and we didn't have, like I said before, that letter connection that Joe and I yeah. had. So I didn't, I didn't want to be presumptuous in that I would ask personal questions straight away. I was kind of putting myself in his shoes going, he's never met me before. I'm just suddenly saying I want to do a life story and not knowing what his life is. I don't know what I'm asking him to share. Um, so I just sort of came, okay, my tactic will be start off kind of top level about the film. And then as we get to know him, I'll test the water with a few questions and see how he responds. And I was really lucky in that Sam at the very, very beginning said, you know what, I, um, I'll put you in contact with my family and friends and I will say to them, as long as you're honest, it doesn't matter what you say. So just be an open book. Any stories that come to mind, share them, uh, answer any questions that she might have. Um, so because we had kind of said at the beginning, you know, if we're going to tell your story and share your message with people to know where you have come through to know what you've come through and where you are now people really need to know where you have come from and that's kind of the basis that joe and i talked about as well for navigator so he was just amazingly open and honest um but i didn't feel comfortable asking him personal questions yet so what had actually happened was because he said that to his friends when i was interviewing the friends particularly patrick's in spree they started telling stories about sam that i didn't know and so then i went to sam with a list of topics and things talked about and said hey look your friends have said these I knew that the story of his brother was one that he was most nervous about because my understanding is that his younger kids didn't actually know the truth about it so this was going to be their first insight into what had happened um so he had spoken to his wife the night before the interview and they talked it through and they just both agreed that yes, if we're going to have this story told and we want people to be inspired by it and learn from it, then we really need to be an open book because, you know, otherwise people might not accept the message as well. So then that interview where he tells everything, I just went through the list of things that friends and family had talked about and asked him about the brother and asked him about the hospital and asked him about this and that. And he was just a completely open book. And so that was probably about three years after meeting meeting him for the first time and probably like the fourth or fifth interview it was. Um, yeah, he may have been open earlier, but I just, as a interviewer, I didn't want to push it just in case. Yeah. You know, I only have one shot at this. So that was kind of going to be my plan too for Joey, but then Joey, <laughs> Joey and I had had this connection before. And then I think, like I said, it was just ready to come out. So it kind of just all came out on that interview. <laughs> yeah, it was, you could see the emotion in it and it was, 
it was both heartbreaking and heartwarming at the same time. Yeah. It's a sort of a, a double-edged sword watching that. And yeah, I kind of left watching it when it finished sort of not emotionally drained, but sort of a, a mix of emotions of, of sadness and happiness for how Joe is now and, and everything. And yeah. And having spoken to him as well, it kind of put a lot more into perspective, having been able to sit and chat to him as well. That kind yeah. of Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think I think what really worked with Navigator is because we were there when he first got out, we had sent him a camera to do those little pieces to camera. So he did a mix of that and then just recorded it on QuickTime. And I would send him questions occasionally going, How do you feel? You know. So because we had that emotional interview when he first got out, it actually works that then over the course of three years of us filming, you can see him change. And so his answers of the interview three years later, you can see in his, the way he answers things and his personality and his confidence, how he's changed. So I don't think you would have got those same raw emotions if we had done those personal interviews later down the line. So I think it worked really well because then you associate him you know, he looks so much healthier towards the end and just he's so vibrant. And so it's nice that when he talks towards the end of filming, it's all about positive things. And it's so he's moved away from the negative feelings of his life, which is part of the rehabilitation process. So I think that worked really well that we did do it that way, even though it wasn't intentional at the beginning. No, it, it definitely wasn't. It definitely had the the intended impact on, from my perspective anyway, watching it, it definitely had, you know, it showed his own personal growth and acceptance of, of everything and, you know, helping him to look forward. Yeah. Which is great. And how, how have you found, or how have you found doing it with, with Noah for Life After Atreyu? How has that sort of evolved from, from Navigator into that? I know lockdown and COVID is, kind of putting a kibosh on everything at the minute but you you get a little bit how has that sort of evolved with with Noah um I had known very early on when we were doing Flash that I wanted to do Life After a Trade I'm like that's going to be the title I love the film I want to do it um it was quite hard to get hold of Noah initially which is why the timeline is how it is um I think everything works out for a reason. I think if we had approached Sam a few years before, he wouldn't have been ready. If we had approached Joey a few years before, it wouldn't have worked out. If we, if I'd got in contact with Noah when I was initially trying to, where he was in his life, it wouldn't have worked out. So it's actually worked out really well that then we did Navigator first. Um, but really, like you say, with lockdown, we, we had lunch with Noah. We talked about what the project would be. It's like what I want from these films, it's a celebration of the films, but the documentaries have to reflect the tone of, and the style of the film that you're celebrating. Plus I think it has to have the personality of this subject as well. So it was really important for us to sit down and talk to Noah about what he loves and it eventuated, he's, you know, kind of a free spirit. So the, the documentary is going to be a road trip from where he lives to North Carolina, where the guy owns the original book prop used in the film so we're going to do this this kind of RV road trip and look at America and small towns and 
it's just going to be this amazing kind of journey that he wants to do like a coffee table photo book of, of America along the way. And so there's elements of his personality in that kind of like an easy rider trip. Um, so that is, you know, that's such a big part of it and we haven't been able to do it yet. Um, obviously, but we had a trip planned in April last year to interview Wolfgang Peterson and Deep Roy and a few of the other actors. So, um, the only filming we have done for that is I interviewed Lamal in England in January, last January, which was great. Um, I can imagine he's absolutely exactly as you would think he would be. He is exactly as you would think. And he just, he, he just is, he has the most amazing skin. It's like, you're just like, you're just, it's you and I, you have done this song and I love it. And so that was really great to talk to him. He was the first interviewee. Then we went to Liverpool to do a couple of days filming. And that was kind of the first time that we were finding our feet with Noah. Um, we hadn't filmed with him yet. So we had booked a trip, that trip in April to kind of do his first sit down interview and yeah. some actuality, but obviously that was postponed. Um, and the plan was to go and see Tammy in New York, but obviously now she's in Scotland, that's going to be easy when lockdown is lifted. I'll go and interview her in Scotland. So really, oh, and we went to, um, Hamburg before lockdown in February to interview Klaus Doldinger, who was the composer of the soundtrack before Giorgio put his synth spin on it, which was very cool because he had a saxophone and he gave us a little concert and it was nice. it was pretty pretty amazing. So we have done like bits and pieces and like I said, we went to see Colin Arthur because he lives down the road from me, funnily enough. Um, so while lockdown's been happening, as well as finishing Navigator, I've just been editing the footage that I have and really just waiting like the rest of the world for everything to yeah. finish. But it would be nice to um, to get that full interview with Noah and I have so many questions and it'd be nice to do the road trip. I'm looking forward to kind of getting to know him as a person. And I think that's why I love doing these films and the kind of USP of the life after it's you're not talking to this actor as an actor and this character you're like getting to know the real them so I'm looking forward to kind of getting to know Noah as hopefully a friend later but yeah. you know it'll be interesting yeah I, I, I was actually going to I, I, got, I got shot down but um, I, my youngest was going to be called I want him to be called a Treyu Bastion that's what I wanted him to be called. I know, I know, I know. I thought I know. you were going to say Noah. I was like, that's no, a nice no. Name, he, I actually wanted him to be called a Treyu Bastion, but uh, it, it got shot down literally within seconds of me saying it. So it never happened. But so hard. I mean, I have dear friends who run Alamo City Comic Con in San Antonio, um, Amanda and Apple. They are the hugest just Star Wars fans, and so they called their boy Jedi which I thought was brilliant. And I thought only them, because they're both massive fans, could yeah. you kind of suggest a name like Jedi? But it's I think it's a brilliant name. So maybe you'll have to have another child and call him uh, a traitor. Yeah, no, I don't think it's ever going to happen. I, I I would have loved for my youngest to have been called a Treyu, but, yeah, I mean, I'd, it's just because of my love for the 80s and, and the film, uh, you know, never-ending story artax gets me every single time like without fail uh, as an almost 40 year old grown man i'll still sit there like tears down my face yeah. watching him sort of begging artax to move and 
I think yeah. everyone does. Everyone does. And here's a fun fact that I had no idea. A close friend of mine who I did the scripted film with, um, her friend owned a horse farm that had Artax. They they were a, a horse farm that rented out horses for movies. So Artax is actually British from England somewhere in Hampshire, I think. So, yeah. That's amazing. Didn't and he was that. fine. After the film, Noah said he lived for a good, like, 10 or 15 years. Um, he got an email when Artex finally died, but it was a long, long time after the movie. So That's mad. Yeah. That's mad. It's so mad to think that, isn't it? It's so mad to think that it was, you know, Artex was here. Because a lot of people, I posted a clip of it on Facebook, um, you know, because my, my kids were watching it for the first time with me. They'd never seen it before. They're only eight and six. They were watching it for the first time with me and I knew exactly what they would be like when they got to that scene. Mm. Uh, so I posted it on Facebook and literally all of my friends were like, why would you do this to me? Why, why would you post this up? Why, why are you doing this? Why are you making me relive this? And it was just all of the same. I was just like, because that's how we grew up. We grew up with yeah. this. this. This is pain. This is what sadness is. It, it was really funny actually watching Noah while we were filming Noah signing for people at the Comic-Con. Pretty much every single person went up to him and said, I had to have therapy. That was the most traumatising scene in any film ever. And even I, like Ash hadn't actually seen it. So I watched it with him the first time after Liverpool. And I was tearing up again with the scene. And he's like, this is the fourth thing. I was like, don't look at me. <laughs> horrible but yeah it's quite it's quite a traumatic scene but it's kind of a rite of passage I think yeah to, to have that feeling and know about it you know like there are a lot of other 80s movies that you love but I don't think there's any real specific scene in another 80s movie that has that same effect as that Artax no. scene no, not not the same for for that scene. No, that scene is is special in itself. I think, and it has. It, I think for a lot of people, a lot of people, you know, early eighties, born nineties, teens, that mm. that holds a certain special place. I think in terms of emotional frailty when it comes the, to my second closest thought of another scene that does that. It's not exactly, but this, the next one would be. Who Framed Roger Rabbit and where he puts, I think it's a boot. He puts the boot in the melting pot and it's like crying and that. I, I've never watched Who Framed Roger Rabbit since because of that boot. Yeah, it's scene. the little gold boot, isn't it? Yeah. It's in I, the tub. Oh, it's just so horrific and it's not even real, but I still, I can't watch that film because of that. So that's the, the second closest thought that comes to mind with being traumatised as a Being traumatised by an 80s film, yeah. Have you got a favourite 80s film? Oh, I do, actually. Um, Dream a Little Dream, which is a slightly... I was older when I watched it for the first time. It's two Corey's film, if people haven't seen it. Um, I was so nervous to meet Matt Adler, who is Jeff, older Jeff in Flight of the Navigator, because he is in Dream a Little Dream and he beats up both Corey's. I don't know if you've seen Dream a Little Dream. That's Corey Haim and Corey Feldman. Corey Feldman, yeah. I was a massive Corey Haim fan, still am. 
so dream a little dream would be probably the film that I have watched the most it kind of it was one of those films that got me through high school and I associate with so many parts of my growing up um aside from dream a little dream also it has an amazing soundtrack um it would be the staple films that you would expect an 80s child to love like flight of the navigator labyrinth dark crystal goonies never ending story et like you know i don't love some obscure european film that shows my cinema you know pizzazz it's literally yeah. just the staple 80s films but definitely my favorite would be dream a little dream yeah yeah see i it's very hard to pick a favorite a favourite 80s film. I mean, Breakfast Club, I'm a huge John Hughes fan. And the first time I watched The Breakfast Club, it, you know, you always associate yourself with one of the main characters. Everyone likes yeah. to think that they're going to be Bender, but they end up being one of the others. And it's yeah. funny, watching it at different stages of, of my life, I can relate to each of the characters separately. You know, it, even, you know, Molly Ringwald, Claire and um, Ali Sheedy as well. You know, it's, it, you kind of, you, you find something that you can relate to. Yeah. And I, and I love, I just love John Hughes. You know, I think The Breakfast Club sort of sums up life in the 80s in, in America suburban, yeah. I guess. But I think that's why the 80s were so special for preteens and teens watching films with characters the same age because they were stories where it could happen to you like I don't know that I am not going to be taken by a spaceship and have this amazing adventure or some of my friends are going to go and find at the bottom of a restaurant that there's you know a water cooler that might move and then we yeah. can go and find this treasure map and I used to when I was little with rocks in the garden, keep smashing them open in the hope that I could find gems that would save my house. And, you know, but they were stories that could actually, actually happen to you as opposed yeah. to now where you've got all these Marvel films, which are very impressive, but I'm not going to be a superhero and I'm not going to end up being an Avenger. And it's just, it's not something that I, that would happen, you know, no. in real life that we know about anyway, but no. It's another no, isn't it? no, but, definitely not. Everyone wanted to yeah. be a goonie, I think, at one point. But they, but it's not just that you wanted to be; it's that you could, could be. be. Like there was a chance that it could actually happen, yeah. as opposed yeah. to the films now. But that's what I love about the eighties, like that they were just so you could connect with them, as opposed yeah. to just loving them. You know. That's, that was exactly it. You can connect to eighties films a lot better than you can do now. You know, I mean, I, I watched um, Space Sweepers today on Netflix. It's a South Korean film, right? And um, it's got a very small budget of twenty one point six million pounds. <laughs> but when you compare it to Avengers, the in terms of CGI, in terms of store. It's so 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 good, mm. literally. I I watched it to, I watched it today and I was blown away by it. I, I the only down thing I can pick it is that they they dubbed South Korean characters with American yeah. accents. That really bugged me because I would love to have had it as subtitled, to be honest. Yeah. Um, as opposed to have uh, opposed to it being dubbed. Yeah. That, that really 
took it away from how great the actors were. But, yeah. you know, again, it goes to show you don't need a lot of money. No, it just, film. you know, films, it just feel, feels like films have less heart these days. Yeah. And it is always about the money and there's always, you know, so many films where you go, oh, let me go and make dinner because there's another 10 minutes of this fight scene or a car chase or whatever it's going to be. And, you know, it doesn't, the, the film that I saw recently that really took me back to those kind of days. And I think Pixar do this. Pixar is brilliant at having heart is soul. The yeah. latest film that they did. Oh my Lord. It's just so Fantastic, good. Isn't and it? It's just, it's like the, they did Coco as well. Didn't they? That was a brilliant film because they just, you really connect to the characters. And I think, they are still doing a spectacular job, but it's so hard to find films now that yeah. you don't just kind of watching. Oh, it was okay. Like, and I get that there's a nostalgia to watching a film as a child because you connect it with your childhood and that's what makes yes. it a bit more magical. But I still don't know films today that kids today would watch. It's more, they watch like three minutes on YouTube and swipe and get another clip. You know, it just doesn't feel that they have that experience which is sad it it really is it really is you know I I I try to educate my my kids I still educate friends on on films now you know a lot of people have never heard of the last starfighter Mm. um uh, which is what I've got just there (laughs) I love it it's just there I've got the lost boys there as well oh I Uh, see the blues brothers yeah blues brothers I've got like my arm as well goes away up there oh nice I've got Goonies. 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 I've got uh, Cobra Kai. Oh, nice. Um, Well, The Lost Boys is another one that's a classic, isn't it? Two Corys again. Yeah, Two Corys again. Yeah. Yeah, the 80s are special films. Come back, 80s. (laughs) I know, right? I know, come back. Come back. um, What is your plan then for, uh, I know obviously it's hard with lockdown, but uh, when are you looking to sort of release we I would love to have Retreyu out next year late next year um and then we do have a number of other life afters in the works that I'm not going to announce yet because they're in various stages I'll tell you when the record button isn't on (laughs) um in various stages of, of production and development so um I'm excited about doing future ones uh but then the next definite next one that will come out will be a tray you I hope next year you know if I can get some filming done even late this year yeah um and then early next year that can give me the rest of the year to edit and get it finished awesome that's amazing so watch this space (laughs) yes absolutely watch this space Lisa thank you so much I really appreciate it it's been it's been eye-opening I hope not in a negative way. (laughs) No, in a great way, in an absolutely great way. It's so lovely to 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 feel your passion for what you do, and and being able to talk to someone with a love of the eighties exactly the same as me, and doing something that I would love to be doing. You know, it's well. I mean, that's the thing about documentaries. You can. There's nothing stopping you picking up. I bought a camera. I had never done a feature documentary before, and I just started filming and worked it out as I went and learned a lot, yeah. met some amazing people and then did a second one with what I knew. So, you know, there's nothing stopping you from p- 
picking a topic and making something. Yeah, I just don't want to step on your toes. I'll no, we'll don't. I'll give you. I'll leave it all I'll to you. I'll give you the list. Yeah. <laughs> I'll leave the. Don't make it a life you. after, and you'll be fine. No, I definitely won't. I definitely won't. Thank you so much, Lisa. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. Thank you very much.